The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage right from your desk using your own computer and printer. Right now, get a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer by going to Stamps.com and using the promo code THEGIST. And by The Message, a new podcast from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, October 5th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Did you hear? The governor of South Carolina declared a state of emergency there. All the flooding, thereby politicizing the hurricane. I can't believe he politicized it like that. Also, a cop stopped me from driving 65 and a 50, politicizing things again. But I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about this very big issue. Stop me when it gets self-indulgent. By the way, that's rhetorical only, Andrea. Let me go on. Dateline Sunday, place Starbucks order, spinach and feta breakfast wrap, two of them, and one reduced fat turkey bacon breakfast sandwich. Let me read you the description of that. Sizzling reduced fat turkey bacon and wholesome cage-free egg whites are paired with this rich creaminess of melted reduced fat white cheddar cheese and an organic wheat English muffin. So good and surprisingly only 230 calories. You had me at the 18th adjective. Anyway, girlfriend and I are going to share three sandwiches, one and a half sandwiches each. We're going to watch the Jets play at 9.30 in the morning there in England. By we, I mean me. By share, I mean also mostly me. Anyway, I come home. The two wraps are there, but not the reduced fat turkey bacon breakfast sandwich, which at this point is surprisingly zero calories. But my day continues apace. I do some fathering. I, I monitor some of the morning shows. I experiment with the uh, new slow-mo feature of my new iPhone by making the children jump from increasingly dangerous elevations. It looks really cool in slow-mo. But then I find myself in the proximity of that actual Starbucks where they did not give me my reduced fat turkey bacon breakfast sandwich. Like a reasonable consumer... I went in. I said, look, I know you guys have had 500 customers come in since I had my two wraps and that and that reduced fat turkey bacon breakfast sandwich. But the thing is, I didn't get the reduced fat turkey bacon breakfast sandwich. And I understand. I don't want a cash refund. But, you know, make me whole. Just give me a new sandwich. The kids will eat it on the way home. You know, if each of them shares it, it'll be a surprising 130 calories. I was asked, do I have a receipt? I expected this question. And I said, no, I don't have a receipt. But trust me, this happened. This isn't my game to get free reduced fat turkey bacon breakfast sandwiches. And the guy said, without a receipt, I can't do anything. And I said, I think you have it within yourself to do something. I'm not asking you for money. I'm not asking you to upset the till. I just want to be made whole. I really would like an acknowledgement that you made a mistake. But since you made the mistake, you could say, here's the sandwich. Worse comes to worse, you could say, I think this guy's lying, but I'm going to give him the sandwich anyway. Starbucks goodwill. He says, without a receipt, I can't prove that you had it. I said, with a receipt, you can't prove that I had it. So I come in saying I got two fader wraps and one reduced fat turkey bacon sandwich. How do those words on a paper prove anything? Come on. At this point, we're just talking about customer service. You and your receipts, you're an anachronism. Anyway, long story short, stop me when this gets indulgent, a surprising 260 calories of indulgent. Starbucks no can do. Can't throw a biscuit my way. So I say, fine. 
You're a large multinational corporation. You don't mind. You don't care about me. You don't care about when the whole city of Seattle hated you for moving the supersonics out of town. I want you to know I supported you, Howard Schultz. I thought your heart was in the right place with this list talk about race campaign. But now I want to talk about sizzling reduced fat turkey bacon and wholesome cage-free egg whites. Not wholesome, not sizzling, non-existent. I can not dine on that, but I can dine on resentment. And I also can dine on opportunity. So I hereby declare that I am not going to Starbucks, not forever, but for $500. For my next $500 worth of coffee that I would otherwise get at Starbucks. I don't go every day, but when I'm in the neighborhood, I often do. Not going to go to a Starbucks. I got an Oslo coffee on my street. I got an Orange coffee on my street. These are just the O's. There's a lot of coffee on my street. So you win the reduced fat turkey bacon breakfast sandwich battle. I think I'm going to win the war. Sincerely, Mike Pesca, a surprisingly resentful podcast host. On the show today, I spiel about gun laws, about which I should admit nothing is going to be done. But what about the gun law arguments? I'm going to give you some, pardon the phrase, some ammunition. But first, a guy who I denigrated a little bit on the show heard me, almost crashed his bicycle. To suddenly hear my voice come on. You know, it's like, Jesus Christ, I'd have quite happily crashed, crashed my bike and died at that moment. It was so embarrassing. You know, I was glad, glad no one else was within earshot. But then I invited him on. You're going to hear it. We had some reproach ma. And you know what? It's about national anthems. So we did it to song. Getting your mailing and shipping done can seem like a no-win situation. Going to the post office takes up valuable time. If you're playing at home, that's one of the losses we're documenting. So what's the other loss? Leasing a postage meter is expensive with multi-year commitments and hidden fees. That's the second loss. Lose, lose, no win. But I'm going to give you a win. I'm going to give you one for the W column. going to get you off the schneid. It's Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you could buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your desk using your own computer and printer. Even get special postage discounts you can't find at the post office. Excuse me, sir. Where do I find the postage discounts? Ah! <laughs> there is no basement at the Alamo. Plus, Stamps.com is more powerful than a postage meter at a fraction of the cost. You can save at least 50% compared to a postage meter, and you will avoid trips to the post office. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST for a special offer, a four-week trial, $110 bonus offer. It includes postage in a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's Stamps.com and enter the gist. Jeremy Corbyn, who is the leader of the Labour Party in the UK, has said several and done several controversial things. One of the most recent ones was he said he uh, is disinclined to drop a nuclear bomb on people. For some reason, this caused quite a row. But earlier, he did not participate in the singing of God Save the Queen, which is certainly something that one wants their national leader to do. And this occasioned an expert, a Mr. Alex Marshall, to be invited on by the BBC to talk about singing the national anthem. And in this conversation, well, I'll play a clip of it that I played on my show. To Americans, they hold this song despite hating it. It only became the national anthem in 1931 in America, and that was very reluctantly. They hate the song. They hate the Star Spangled Banner. It's too long. It's too difficult to sing. It's a British drinking song. They only adopted it really reluctantly. But as soon as they did, it became almost the core of their being, and no one can question it. 
I later went on to call Mr. Marshall Sir Trevor Twiddle Twaddle. It's not true. Alex Marshall is a learned man, although I'd like to at least talk about some of his opinions about the U.S. National Anthem. Alex Marshall is the author of Republic or Death, Travels in the Search of National Anthems. Hello, Alex. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Good to have you on. So your thesis with the uh, Star Spangled Banner, the U.S. National Anthem, was that although Americans have come to love it, they don't, it's not really, it's not really in their soul to love it. It was, it's quite a bad song and there's really nothing lovable about it. I, well, personally, I don't think there's that much lovable about it. I mean, the, the octave, it's got a, a range of an octave and a half, which makes it the most difficult national anthem for anyone to sing. I mean, if you look at South Korea, which is the only other country that had a similar range, they actually changed their national anthem so post-pubescent boys could, could manage to sing it. You know, it was a song only basically for women in that country. I would have to say that speaks well of the United States, not pandering to the needs of the post-pubescent boy. <laughs> <laughs> but the the problem is with it is when it was first written, it was this great song, you know, of hope, almost of relief that, you know, America had still survived despite the British bombing Baltimore for over 24 hours and bombing, you know, burning down your capital. And, you know, it was really appropriate at the time. It hit the mood, but mm -hmm. it was never adopted as a national anthem immediately. And it sort of limped along for about 120 years. And when, when countries pick a song to be theirs, they tend to pick one pretty pretty instantly. A country that's newly independent doesn't, you know, wait 120 years to pick a flag to, you know, try and define its borders or pick a currency. But America did this with its song. And I think that's because people just didn't really like it. They found it too difficult. They they thought the words were outdated and they preferred so, so many other songs. You've got so many great patriotic songs. Yes. I met countless people in your country who prefer other songs far more, even if it's things like, you know, My Country, Tis of Thee, or, you know, God Bless America. I mean, at citizenship ceremonies, at the end of them, the song that gets played isn't, you know, your national anthem. It's by Lee Greenwood. And I mean, that sort of says it all. And I'm proud to be an American Where at least I know I'm free And I won't forget the men who died Who gave that right to me And I'd gladly stand up next to you And defend her still today Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land God bless the USA. Although the anthem does have its demerits, I like that it's a bit of a relic and it's kind of hard and it's not so accessible. It's one of the few things, you know, we don't even vote in respectable numbers in the country. It's kind of the one of the <laughs> few ways that Americans challenge themselves to do something American. But the best national anthems find their place without having a government boost. They almost force themselves on the country. If you think think of the Marseillaise, you know, France's great, incredibly bloody and today incredibly politically inappropriate national anthem, you know, one that calls for the French to water the fields with impure blood and which, you know, most people today, when they're singing it, they look left and right to check no French Algerians are within earshot because it's just so inappropriate. But that forced itself to become France's national anthem because it's such a rousing, you know, extremely, you know, exciting song. All the anthems of Latin America did exactly the same. You know, China's anthem did it. This, this song called March of the Volunteers about building a new great wall with your own flesh and blood.
So you think the Latin American anthems are inherently rousing? They're just good songs? I've seen people cry at the Uruguay national anthem. They go against every rule of national anthems. They're basically mini operas. You know, they go on for six minutes. And, you know, they are written all by failed opera composers, guys from Italy and Spain who who emigrated to South America in search of work because they couldn't make it in the opera opera halls of Rome or, or Milan. And that's why they go, they go on with false endings. They have these massive crescendos. Most of them have a minute-long introduction. I mean, if you see someone standing there at the Olympics or before a soccer game, the reason they're not singing is because they never actually get to the words because they just have these incredibly over-the-top introductions. And the words to them are ludicrously exciting. <laughs> you know, they go on, they basically tell the whole story of that continent. You know, they say how the Spanish left people in chains and then the people finally rose up and the land rose up and all these mythical beasts rose up to destroy them and throw them out. And then they have these fantastic warnings about if the Spanish come back and, you know, people better be armed just in case, apart from Ecuador's, which calls on a volcano to erupt and to destroy the entire country so the Spanish can never get their hands on it ever again. And when I was looking at that, I actually had to contact the Ecuadorian embassy and say, you know, is this right? You know, this isn't just my bad translation. You really want the entire country to be blown up. You know, can't you just hide and, and blow up the Spanish instead? But no, they're, they're dead set on it. Lyrically, are there any anthems that step away from the general themes of God favors us and we will defend our country and we uh, are the real people and we rally <laughs> about each other? I mean, one of the most interesting things going on right now is that Switzerland's trying to have what it terms the first 21st century anthem, you know, the, the first one that's about a country's values rather than about a place and, you know, how its mountains look nice. And they've just had this competition for, for new words for their song called the Swiss Psalm. And they've ended up with this winning entry that talks all about Switzerland's strength in diversity and how it believes in the weakest member of society and so on. And if you ever have been to Switzerland and you've seen this sort of all-white population that greets you and you know anything about their sort of rather tense relations with immigrants, it seems a bit, you know, strange that this is the song they've gone for. But it it is quite admirable in a way that they would look to update their anthem and to try and push these songs into areas which are not normally discussed. Yeah, although it's not Switzerland, Switzerland, a land that's never told, hey, what can we do? We hid, <laughs> we hid the Nazis' gold. Like that, that doesn't scan in German, first of all. But, you know, it, anthems are about projecting an image mm -hmm. on the outside world. And they've got to, as much as they're about, you know, getting people excited before sports events, they're also, you know, things that come up in pub quizzes, which foreigners look up before going to a country. And, you know, you've got to have a message that tries to impress 
you know, impress the outside world. I don't know what you, you know, that's why America's is almost so good, why yours is so good. I mean, the land of the free and the home of the brave. It's the sort of ultimate advertising slogan. And while while in the States, the, the people who I found it resonated most with were sort of immigrants who who were almost attracted by that song. I mean, there's about five anthem composers who live in the States from other countries. You know, the guy who wrote Barbados's, the guy who wrote St. Kitts, and two people who helped write Nigeria's. And I met one of them in, in Delaware, this guy called Babatunde Ogonaiki, who's the Dean of Engineering at the University of Delaware, this really nice guy. And we're talking about his Nigerian anthem. And he was saying that, you know, to him that song's lost all its power and all the optimism he put into it when he was this 16-year-old kid back in Nigeria, hoping his country would rise up and become the great African nation it should be. But when he hears the Star Spangled Banner, he's reminded, especially that line, that cliched line, he's reminded exactly why he came to the States in the first place and what the U.S. has given him. Now, the uh, Star Spangled Banner, the music is to that English drinking song. Uh, what can you tell me about the English drinking song? Are its lyrics body? Is it still sung today? <laughs> If it is still sung today, it's sung by people like David Cameron. I mean, it was for, <laughs> it was a very posh drinking song back back ah. in back in the 1700s. This society called the Anacreontic. I can't even. It's, that's how posh it is. I struggle to right. say the words. It would have to be. It's an octave and a half drinking song. That's quite a drinking song. And it and it was initially, you know, it was basically written to show off. You know, that's why the range is so high. You know, a guy would stand up there and he would. You know, he'd have had a few drinks and he would basically, you know, look what a great singer I am. You know, I might be the Earl of, I might be Sir Terry Twitwaddle, as you called me <laughs> it before. But, you know, look how great my voice is. It's so much better than yours. That doesn't really go down well with the man on the street here. You know, here people don't know that song anymore. And, you know, for good reason. Alex Marshall is the 37th Earl of Twitwaddle. No, he's not. <laughs> he is the author of Republic or Death Travels in Search of National Anthems. Hail to thee, Alex. Thank you very much. Whose broad stripes and bright stars through the Whose broad stripes and bright stars at the dawn's early light, whatsoever we strain, and the dawn lights still The Gist is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. 
I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Uh, sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. And now the spiel disarming arguments. Another day, another death by firearm. Oh, if only that were true. We're not Canada. They have a gun-related murder every other day. For us, it's a death by firearm 30 times a day. So another hour, another death, or at least that's what we can maybe one day strive for. Why? So many answers to that question, but I'll give it to you in a sentence. We have a lot of guns. This is true across countries, across states in the United States, within states. It has been documented eight ways to Sunday. Oh, Sunday, that's another 30 deaths. More guns equal more deaths. It's irrefutable. But let us talk about those who would refute it. Because if you are an American, you probably own a gun. Well, it does work out to almost one gun per American, but that's because so many are owning mini arsenals. About a third of all Americans own a firearm. So if you do or if you don't, what I'd like to do is talk about some of the counter arguments to gun control. Because I have to say, watching the Sunday shows, hearing the politicians, they talk about common sense arguments. I don't get common sense. To me, common sense says owning a gun is a really serious thing. Other things in this country that are not so serious, like cars and building a deck, require permitting, require training. Cutting someone's hair requires months and months of training. Owning a gun just happens lickety-split. And to me, that's the common sense. I don't know how you get more common sense than that. Apparently, I don't understand it. I'm out of the common sense loop. So all I can do is this. Let's play some of the common arguments against gun control. A few of them... I will concede are pretty swaying. I will be as fair as I can as we shoot holes in the logic, as it were. Let's start with Dr. Ben Carson. Gun control only works for normal law-abiding citizens. Doesn't work for crazies. Actually, exactly the opposite. Laws banning insane people from getting guns only work on insane, non-law-abiding people. And when those laws are enforced competently, they do work. In 2006... The man who would go on to shoot people in the Louisiana movie theater this year in 2006, he tried to buy a gun but was denied a permit because he was involuntarily committed. Then he went to Alabama, neighboring state from Louisiana, and he did buy a gun. Alabama doesn't really do a lot to check to see if the purchaser is mentally competent to own a gun. Even Bobby Jindal, A-plus rating from the NRA, says things should be done to make it so that crazy people, the crazies, aren't able to get guns so easily. But here's another popular argument put forth by Marco Rubio. I always find it interesting that the reflexive reaction of the left is to say we need more gun laws. Criminals don't follow gun laws. Only law-abiding people follow gun laws. 
This is an excellent argument, not against gun laws, but against all laws. Why pass any laws? Turns out criminals don't follow laws. In logic, this is known as a tautology, but the NRA apparently thinks it's so powerful enough they turned it into a bumper sticker, which goes like this. When guns are criminalized, only criminals will own guns. Yes, by definition, that's how criminalizing things work. That is the verb form of criminal. It's also really bad, bad logic. And here's some similar logic from Greta Van Susteren on ABC's This Week. When I practice law in the District of Columbia, very strict gun laws, and, and every single one of my clients could get a gun. Uh, that is not a strict gun law. Let me ask you, if you're a parent, do you consider yourself a strict parent? If so, do you have a lot of rules you don't follow? Then you're not a strict parent. Having a rule you fail to enforce isn't actually being strict. It's called being ineffective. Now, I see what's going on in this argument, in Marco Rubio's argument, and so do you. If we ban guns, that means we're going to take away your gun. You're the person who follows the law. So the government's going to reach in, it's going to take away your gun, and you're going to be vulnerable. You're going to be vulnerable to all those criminals who still have their guns because they're not going to give their guns up. But is that really how it works? Let's look at situations where they did ban guns. New York City, very strict gun laws. Do they only take law-abiding people's guns? No. The cops target criminals with guns because they're the ones with guns, and regular citizens feel generally safe. In fact, the whole over-criminalizing and pat-downs, that's one side of the argument, but you know what they're really doing? They're going after criminals who have guns. There are costs to that, but that's what cops do when guns are banned. They try to take the guns off the street from bad people who will use their gun. Look at Australia, the country of Australia, which went from very permissive in terms of gun ownership to very strict. It followed a massacre, but in Australia today, people don't feel unsafe without a gun because the law enforcement authorities encouraged people to give up their guns and then they went after the people who didn't because those were the criminals. Turns out the cops want to keep crime down. They don't want to take the guns away from law-abiding people. And by the way, when guns are bad, those people won't be law-abiding again. This is the other side of the tautology. Anyway, the message, the, the only criminals allowed guns, it's intended to land on the ears of people who feel unsafe in a nation awash in guns. And it's meant to say to them, you're going to feel a lot more unsafe if we take away your guns. But yeah, the better question is, well, will you feel more unsafe if we take away their guns? Because that's what really happens. The police take away the bad guys' guns. I don't know. At this point, those people who the argument is for, who the idea of common sense is trying to hit, they're just saying, yeah, whatever. Can I have my gun back? All right, here's another frequent argument. You look at Chicago, it's got the toughest gun laws in the United States. You look at other places where they have gun laws that are very tough. They do, generally speaking, worse. Of course, Donald Trump, he's not wrong. Gun laws really don't work in Baltimore and Chicago for lots of reasons. But there's another city Trump left off the list. A tremendous city, his city, New York City. Less than 350 murders last year, 2,200 in the early 90s. Lots of things happened. Good gun laws were one of those things. Real gun laws. Don't screw around with the guns. Gun laws. Oh, if only Greta Van Susteren were a lawyer in New York. Maybe Plexico Burris's lawyer. Right now, New York City has a homicide rate of 2.2 per 100,000. I know that means nothing to you. 
but it's lower than most states. It's lower than the entire state of Kentucky. And Kentucky's not a particularly murderous state. So if you ever come across someone from Paducah who's worried about visiting New York City because of the crime, you could tell him, actually, you'll about half your chance of being murdered just by traveling to New York. Just don't bring your Remington with him. The analogy I would use for saying, if gun laws work, what about Chicago, is to say, well, antibiotics are perhaps the greatest invention in the history of mankind. When they do those lists, things like antibiotics or irrigation usually wind up at the top. Antibiotics don't stop AIDS. Antibiotics don't stop Ebola. Does that mean that antibiotics don't work? I don't know. I think they do work, just not in every case. Chicago is resistant to treatments like gun laws and gun control, but gun control can work. It's not a panacea, but it can work. Right now, the national rate of gun homicide is 3.5 gun deaths per 100,000 people. That's according to the Kaiser Family Health. There are 13 states that require some sort of permit to own a gun, either a handgun or all firearms. Of the 13 states, the only 13 states, we have to have a permit, 11 are below the national homicide rate. Now, Michigan isn't, Maryland isn't. So you could go on and you say, hey, if they, if they worked, why don't they work in Michigan? Why don't they work in Maryland? Those are the exceptions. In general, gun control laws correlate to lower homicide rates. The Brady campaign to prevent gun violence, you know where they're coming from, gives states letter grades based on their gun laws. There were 10 states that got a grade of B- minus or better. Seven of those 10 states are in the bottom 10 for gun homicide rate. So the better grade you get by Brady, the more likely you are to have a low murder rate. Maryland's an exception. Now, what Brady doesn't tell you, what I'm going to tell you here, is that a lot of states they give an F to, Maine, the Dakotas, Utah, Idaho, they're also in the bottom for gun homicides. Big states, low population density, western states, they often don't have a lot of murders. But you know what's interesting? They do have a lot of gun deaths. If you look at all those Brady statistics, they're always talking about gun deaths. But gun rights groups will talk about gun homicides in places like Utah and Idaho to say why they don't need tough gun laws. Those, those states have low homicide rates. Gun deaths very much correlates to gun ownership because of suicides. Alaska has extremely high gun ownership, the highest, but not a, not a terrible homicide rate, same as, same, about the same as New York State. When you take into account suicide, Alaska is off the charts. So, do you care about potential suicides? Do you care about how quickly guns turn ideation into action? Or do you think good suicide prevention practices that's incompatible with the idea that a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, and on and on and on. All the facts, all the stats, all the arguments, if you get an unmuddied version of the facts and the stats and the arguments, show that there is a pretty strong correlation, not a perfect coincidence, but a correlation between stronger gun laws and fewer gun deaths. Well, what about this city? Well, what about that one gun nut? Yes, we could play that game forever. A correlation doesn't mean that every shooting would have been prevented, but it strongly suggests that there would be more people alive today if there were stronger gun laws, if there were fewer guns. And this is the real conundrum of gun laws. It's not NRA campaign funding or Bloomberg counterfunding. It's that we know who the victims are. It's a little over 30,000 if you take into account the suicides, 13,000 if you just talk about homicides. We know who the owners are. Like I said, about a third of all Americans, 100 million people with guns, 100 million Americans with guns. But we'll never know who is saved by laws. I don't know, there's like 10 or 20,000 New Yorkers walking around today because of good gun laws and other things, but good gun laws play a part. Who are they? Are they, are they friends with your kids? Are they your neighbors? Are they teachers in your school? 
Did you ride the F train with him? You'll never know. You'll never know who was saved by a gun law, right? Which one would be the son of a congressman, some other policymaker who could actually have his mind changed by personal experience? This is how a lot of people change their mind about gay marriage. More guns equal more deaths. You can't deny it, but I don't see how you could change it either. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is a practitioner of gray ops, which in psychological operations is the activity engaged in appears to emanate from a non-official source, but there may be no attribution. Andy Bauer is executive producer of The Gist, fled his last job, which made him trade in beige ops, which is information where the source is unclear, but the content is so inoffensive it doesn't matter. The Gist We are renowned for our work in off-white ops, which the information isn't trying to fool anyone, but the discussion always gets bogged down in, is it eggshell? Is it Indian summer? Would it look better in the light? But now I give you craftsmen of a special kind of skullduggery. It's They Might Be Giants, their dial-a-song entry for the week, Black Ops. Story told before rewriting 